Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So what happened is after I wrote Disrupt Yourself, I had a lot of people say to me um, as I was, you know, speaking and consulting and coaching, they're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I want to disrupt myself. But how do I let my how do I get my boss to let me disrupt myself? And how do I create an ecosystem where that disruption is possible? And so that started that question for me. How do I answer that question? And so then as I started to drill down on that question, I realized, okay, well. He, the, the big aha around that was, okay, actually, if you want to have a company that can remain competitive, if you want a company that can survive, if you want to lower your about to be disrupted score, you actually have to create a team um, or, or a situation where people are able to disrupt themselves periodically. And, and so that personal disruption will allow your team to be effective. So it was kind of an outside in thing. It, it's certainly not where I started. It's more of where I ended up. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Whitney, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, Shrini. Yeah. Am I pronouncing your name correctly, Shrini? <laughs> yeah, you are. Okay, good. Uh, well, is... I'm just like, oh, I hope I got that right. Uh, yeah, well, it's wonderful to have you back here for a second time. Uh, I wanted to bring you back because I know you have a new book out, which we will talk about. But before we get to that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did what they did for a living end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Mm, such a great question. Okay. So my, um, my father was an attorney and, um, and then he was a mortgage broker. He actually got disbarred for um, embezzling money. And then he was a mortgage broker. So I think the influence he had on me was like, don't do illegal things. Um, and so when I think about that, I'm not sure there's a ton of influence, but my mom Absolutely. A hundred percent. So, you know, my mom, um, she was born in 1937. She worked my entire life, which was kind of unusual. And so watching her always work, I think was, uh, you know, for me, like that was normal when I graduated from college, of course I was going to work, even though I thought I wasn't going to, of course I was going to work. And it turns out that she did a lot of work around instructional design, a lot of train the trainer, a lot of facilitated workshops. And so, um, um, that had, and she always wanted to write a book, but never did. And so here I have written a book here. I do a lot of work where I do the keynoting and the consulting, but it involves a lot of facilitation, a lot of teaching. And so watching her and being aware that that was something that she did, I think has definitely influenced, um, what I do now and my belief that I can do it well because I watched her do it. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, having seen what your dad did, uh, and I know, you know, from our last conversation, uh, you, you went from being a pianist, which we will go back to in, in a bit of detail because I want to talk about that, uh, to working at an investment bank. Uh, how did those two experiences shape your perception of money, wealth, and kind of where we're at uh, as a society in terms of, you know, what the economy is looking like and, and what sort of economic status is looking like for people of various classes? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Um, so I, I think so with my yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, this is actually a much bigger question, but um, but but we'll just see where it takes us. So I've been doing a lot of study and um, recently discovered the work of Bob Proctor, and he wrote a book called You Were Born Rich, and he does a lot of talking and thinking about the paradigms that people have around money and wealth, et cetera. And, um, and in addition to that, I have, and my dad died a few years ago when he was basically penniless. And also, we've been doing a lot of family history, and there's been questions like, you know, do you want to do your family history? Does it make sense, et cetera? And I've been very, very fascinated by it because I want to know where I came from. And initially I wanted to do it because I wanted to find famous people. Right. So I did find, you know, that my great, great grandfather was, uh, Ebenezer Bryce and, um, Bryce Canyon was named after him. But I also have found a lot of people living very ordinary lives. Um, people who would be forgotten had we not done the work to try to find them. But the one thread that's been fascinating for me is that a lot of people, at least on my dad's side, were in the poorhouse. They were very, very poor people. And it's been interesting to me as I've th thought about the Bob Proctor work of how there are some people who it's almost in their DNA to have financial um, wealth, to have financial well-being. And then there are other people for whom it's not. And so as we have tried to figure out money on our front, that's something I've struggled with. And as I've thought about this, I'm like, now I understand why, because this is kind of in my DNA. And so that sort of kind of taking that more personal example, I do think that there is some element of, of this that kind of um, spreads out or radiates out to our lives in general and our society. There are certain um, traditions in families where, for example, in my family, of course, we're going to get a college education. Of course, our children will go to college. Of course, their children will go to college. And I think there are instances where, of course, people have money and, of course, they've saved money and, of course, they built wealth. And of course, they know how to make money. And then there are lots of families where that's not the case. And I certainly see this polarization where we live. We live in a, a town called Lexington, Virginia. It's rural Virginia. Um, to people from the north, it's very much the south. For people in the south, it's not. But it's a town where you've got Virginia Military Institute. You've got um, Washington and Lee. You've got a lot of people who have lived here for generations and generations. You see this cross crossing of society at Walmart. It's a very small town, who, um, who many of whom voted for Trump and many of whom, you know, there are bumper stickers and posters everywhere. And what's interesting to me is what we're seeing in our society is that people are kind are, are caught in their paradigm of how their lives were. And part of the reason that, um, that I think they voted for Trump is that they said, I hate this paradigm. I don't like it. I feel trapped here and I don't know what to do and I want to get out. And so this is their way of doing that. And so, so the problem I think that we're trying to solve is how do you get 
me? How do we get you? How do we get the people that I go to Walmart with every week to start to see ourselves differently and see um, ourselves as we're all people that get educations. We're all people in our brain. We believe to the depth of our soul. We're all people that are capable of making money. I know that may sound utopian, but I do believe it's possible because we've seen it over and over again of people going from rags to riches. Not just one person can do it, but every single one of us can. Mm. I think that what's interesting to me uh, when you describe you know, some of the people that you're talking about is the attempt to make a, a, a an internal paradigm shift through an external change. Why do people do that? Why do people think that? And how do mm. you shift it to being something internal instead? Well, you know, it's a lot easier to attempt change through an external paradigm shift because it completely takes us off the hook, right? My life is bad and it's your fault. And um, and so I think the way that we change that and we shift that is when there's some kind of wake up call for us. Ideally, some of us are grow up that way, but I think we're all on a continuum where we have that moment and we realize the only way the only way for me to make things better is for me to do something about it. And, um, and some of us will get there and some of us won't. But I do think in the meantime, if we're not willing to make that change, we're going to play the blame game and say, I'm just going to go elect someone who will fix this for me. And we know that that, that, that just, frankly, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. As somebody who worked uh, at an investment bank, Do you ever look at the people who are in the industry and question if they did things that are in conflict with your own values and your own standards? Oh, I think we, uh, I think we all have, and and we don't even mean to, because one of the things that happens is when you start swimming in a pool, um, you know, where everybody's swimming in one direction and you start to, and I think you just, um, you know, there are people like, um, made off. I'm not talking about that kind of thing, but there's all these sorts of shades of gray. And so the question is, is, you know, once you realize, oh, I may not have done something quite as ethical as I, you know, as I, in retrospect, I could have done is once you're aware of that, you know, if you think about this idea of we're all weak. <laughs> so the question is, is once you realize, oh, I need to be more ethical and you're aware that you weren't is, are you more ethical tomorrow than you were yesterday? So, um, but I guess your bigger question is, you know, given my belief system, is it, you know, was I comfortable working on Wall Street? Absolutely. I mean, capitalism is a really good thing. Capitalism is just a bad thing when we start to um, abuse it. But I think in general, um, we create a lot of wealth and a lot of really good things and a lot of opportunities because of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I just started reading uh, Robert Reich's book, Saving Capitalism. And you know, it's interesting for a guy who was in his position to talk about saving capitalism. But, you know, he said part of what is challenging is, is that uh, he said, you know, you can't have a market that has no sort of restrictions around it because that's how chaos ensues. Absolutely. hundred percent, hundred percent. We have to have constraints. I think, I think where we get in trouble is that we, we think, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book, Disrupt Yourself is this idea of we need constraints and we have to embrace constraints. And if we don't have constraints, we have to create them because without constraints, chaos ensues. And we all think, oh no, no, I don't want them. But you think about it. There is no great achievement that takes place without some type of constraint in, in place. I mean, think about just gravity in general, right? 
planes happen, rockets happen because of people trying to defy gravity. And so I think I think when we're kind of kicking against those constraints, we need to reconsider the fact that it is the constraint, it's the friction, that law of physics that allows us to actually get anything anything done, any, certainly anything meaningful. So I remember from our last conversation that prior to doing the work that you do, prior to working at Wall Street, you were actually trained as a classical pianist. And I'm wondering if you could take us back to when that started uh, for you and what the training was like when you started, uh, you know, when you were younger and how it evolved over time. Mm. Yeah. So uh, the way it started is that we went to see The Sound of Music when I was three years old and um, I was entranced and it just kind of makes me cry because I feel so happy about it. And I came home and I was like, I have to figure out how to play Do Re Mi on the piano. And I did. And, you know, I begged and begged and begged and begged my parents to let me take piano. And this was an era where you didn't start your children at piano at the age of three. And so finally, by the time I was seven, um, they let me start studying piano. And so I, I studied classical piano. Um, what was interesting for me, and I, I suppose this happens to a lot of children, is that I was actually pretty good at it. And so somewhere along the way, probably by the time I was in high school, what had started out as my dream became my parents' dream. And they were more excited about it than I was. And so I continued to study music, um, but then found myself more and more, by the time I got in college, I'm like, ah, I don't really like classical piano so much. Um, and I still majored in music, and I, I did a recital and all that but I was like, I like jazz and jazz is a great example of the power of constraints, but then creating something within constraints. And so I dabbled in that. I played in um, our jazz band in our, at our university. And, um, and so that was, that was, you know, what music was for me. And what's interesting is that when I graduated from college, even though we moved to New York, there was a big piece of me that said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with this certainly for now. And so I set music aside. We needed to put food on the table. I didn't want to become a musician. And so as my husband was getting his his graduate degree in microbiology, I, I went to work and as a secretary on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Have Having had uh, something that started out as your dream and having it become your parents' dream, has it changed your own thoughts on parenting and, and what would you say oh, to, to parents? 100%. 100%. Sometimes too much, actually. So I'll give you a, a, a bad example and a good example. So, you know, we started having our son, um, who's now 21, have him take piano and he's like seven years old. And, and I made the mistake of saying, my mom made me practice. And so then he... You know, and I don't want to do that to my children. So here he is seven years old and you see his fingers on the piano and they were beautiful. He had some aptitude, but he basically arbitraged precedent against me and was like, hey, mom, you know, your mom made you. Are you going to make me like he's seven years old? And I was like, you're right. I can't do this to you. And so I let him quit. And that was stupid. Like I didn't need to let him quit and let it still be his dream. And he's still kind of upset with me that we let him quit. So that's one way, one place where the pendulum swung too far. Now, on the opposite opposite side, where I think we have handled it much better as our children have gotten older, is and they've also been aware of it. Is our daughter really likes? Um, so she's a rising senior. She really loves quiz bowl or academic team, depending on what part of the country you're in. And 
at one point, you know, she was studying for it. And, um, I was like, you know, do you want me to test you and et cetera. And she said to me, she had the awareness because of the conversations that we have. She's like, mom, this is really my dream. I, I, I want to do it myself. I was like, okay, you got it. And so I think that those are, so I think with anything, anything that we see our parents do that we're actually not happy about, I think, I think it's important to learn from it. And at the same time to, as we learn from it, to not let the pendulum go too far the other way, uh, other way and to try to find some happy medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anytime I talk to musicians, I'm always interested in, in uh, the impact that being a musician has had on the habits that they have as an adult, the creative practices they have uh, later on in their life, and the role that that has played uh, in the work that they do today. So I'm wondering about those things, but also uh, how did the experience of piano uh, shape kind of the work that you've done today in terms of, of working with people and, and leadership and building teams? Okay. Yeah. So there are a couple of thoughts. Um, first of all, you know, when I was in college, I got up and I practiced piano every day for three hours from, you know, 6am to 9am or at least six days a week. I don't, I don't think I practiced on Sunday or in fact, I know I didn't. So 6am to 9am. So I have, I'm disciplined. Um, I tend to not think I'm disciplined, but if you ask my husband and children, they're like, yeah, you're disciplined. And so I know how to sit down and do work. Um, and so I think that definitely influenced me and my work ethic in terms of, in terms of the musicality, there are a couple of things I would say. Number one is on the piano. I'm actually a really good accompanist. So I'm able to have someone sing or play an instrument. And I'm really, really good at listening to them and responding to them and being attuned to what they're doing and sensing where they're going. And I do think that that has definitely, um, benefited me in working with people in terms of listening, in terms of having conversations, in terms of exploring, whether it's me as a coach, whether it's me um, developing new business um, as a consultant, etc. The third thought that I'm having around that is um, just the other day, I had such a lovely compliment. This just happened last week. And he didn't know I'm a musician. He didn't know I played the piano. And after I finished speaking, he said to me, I felt like as I was listening to you from a craft perspective, I was listening to a concert pianist and I was just so happy in that moment. And I realized, first of all, because it was a wonderful compliment, but also I realized that all of this musical training was coming to bear when I speak, um, the ability to say, you know, sometimes you just stop and you let there be quiet and you don't talk and you let people be a part of that conversation. The power of the pause when you're playing a piece of music and you just stop. I think there's that wonderful quote by, um, Miles Davis that said the music takes place in the silence and the ability to have some musicality in the phrasing or the ability in terms of the arc of a speech or a presentation, um, of, you know, a first movement, a second movement, a last movement. So I think in terms of crafting a speech, um, all of that musical training somehow gets infused into that process of being able to deliver a message. I can relate. I think that um, having played uh, a tuba for, I think, 10, 12, 13 years, uh, up until junior year in college when I finally decided I was done with it, uh, I realized that that gave me an incredible level of discipline that would serve me extremely well later on in my life. Right, right. 
Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears and let's start talking about, uh, you know, the book itself. And what what in particular planted uh, your interest uh, in wanting to study teens as opposed to the individual? Um, yeah. So what happened is after I wrote Disrupt Yourself, I had a lot of people say to me, um, as I was, you know, speaking and consulting and coaching, they're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I want to disrupt myself, but how do I let my, how do I get my boss to let me disrupt myself? And how do I create an ecosystem where that disruption is possible? And so that started that question for me. How do I answer that question? And so then as I started to drill down on that question, I realized, okay, well, the, the big aha around that was, okay, actually, if you want to have a company that can remain competitive, if you want a company that can survive, if you want to lower your about to be disrupted score, you actually have to create a team um, or, or a situation where people are able to disrupt themselves periodically. And, and so that personal disruption will allow your team to be effective. So it was kind of an outside in thing. It, it's certainly not where I started. It's more of where I ended up. Well, let's talk about the, the specific concepts in the book. I mean, I know the first thing that you talk about is what you call the S-curve of learning. Can you explain to us what that is and, and how it applies to people's lives? Yeah. Um, so so one of the big insights that I had when we were at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I co-founded with Clayton uh, Christensen is that the um, we were applying the S-curve, which was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962, uh, to investing. And it helps you figure out how quickly an innovation will be adopted. At the low end, growth is slow until you reach the knee of the curve or the tipping point, and it's 10 to 15% market share typically. And then that you're the steep part of the sleek back of the S, and then you get to the top, 90% are saturation, and growth tapers off. And so as we're applying this to investing, I have this insight. I'm like, this doesn't just apply to products. This applies to people. And at a very high level, this is a, this is a framework for managing change. And if you think about any time you start something new, you're at the low end of the S. You're inexperienced. You're a beginner. You don't know what you're doing. And growth is going to be slow. That's what the S-curve math tells you. And because you know that that's what the math looks like, it helps you avoid being discouraged. And then after about six months, if you're mapping against the 10,000-hour rule, you move into that sweet spot, that steep part of the curve where you're feeling competent with this comes confidence, you're supremely engaged, you're loving the work you're doing, it's hard but not too hard, easy but not too easy. And then after about three to four years, you get to the top of the curve where it's now easy, you're a master, but because you're no longer learning, you get bored. And so what do you need to do? You need to disrupt yourself, you need to start all over again, you need to learn, leap, and repeat. And so that's the S-curve, and that's that's the, um, the foundation upon which which this book and that the premise of, uh, or is the premise of, of the work that I do. Mm. Well, I mean, it seems like a natural segue to, uh, you know, from, from hitting that top of the curve is to talk about what you call the, the seven accelerants of learning and growth. Cause I'd imagine if you get to the top of the curve, what kind of makes you bored is the fact that you're no longer learning and growing. Right. So the seven accelerants. So what's fun about this is that in the book, Disrupt Yourself, I talked about them from, uh, from an individual standpoint. And then I re, re, um, 
reframe them in um, build an A team. And it's just one chapter of how do you look at them from a managerial perspective. But the they're very, very quickly. Um, number one is to figure out how to take the right kinds of risks. Um, we tend to take on competitive risk um, and to want to play where everybody else is playing. And you're much more successful, says the theory of disruption, um, when you're willing to take on market risk and play where no one else is playing. The second one is to play to your distinctive strengths and figure out not just what you do well or the people on your team do well, but figure out ways to put them in situations where those strengths are actually distinctive. Something like the koala, who um, has a distinctive strength of being able to survive on eucalyptus leaves and no one else can. The third one is to embrace constraints, and we talked about that briefly, is the importance of... um, of constraints. And if you don't have them, you need to create them. Fourth is to battle our sense of entitlement, the belief that I exist, therefore I deserve. Um, Entitlement comes in many guises. So it's not a matter of if it's a matter of how. And um, but in a nutshell, once you're on that sweet spot of the curve, right at that point in time, when you've got the cognitive, the emotional, the financial bandwidth to question what you're doing, to allow people on your team to jump to a new learning curve. Instead, we tend to pull it and say, I built this team. I deserve a fiefdom. This is the way things will and should always be. And we've got to continually battle that sense of I, you know, it's, it's mine and therefore it should stay that way. Number five is step back in order to grow, which comes in again, many shapes. It can be step back from work to rest. It can be step back from your addiction to being right. It can be step back to take on a lateral move or even um, step back uh, to do, uh, you know, some type of job that doesn't seem to make sense at all. Mm-hmm. Six is give failure its due. Um, as a boss, the way you give failure its due is you give people an opportunity to make mistakes. In fact, you require them to make mistakes, but when they do, then you have their back. Um, and with the, with your boss, you have their back. And then number seven is to be driven by discovery. Um, as a disruptor, you're like, you're looking for a market that has yet to be defined. You're playing where no one else is playing. And what we've seen from our research is that when you will use these seven levers, you're going to be able to move up a learning curve much more quickly and effectively. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So, you know, if I'm, I'm looking at people as a manager or somebody who hires other people, sometimes I'm not aware of their strengths or even they are not aware of their strengths. How do we uncover those in other people? Oh, such a great, great question. Um, yeah. So one of the things that happens is that because um, our strengths are things that we do reflexively well, we don't value them. It's like air. So we're like, well, that thing, like, that's not a big deal. That's so easy for me. And so sometimes when you hire a person, they on their resume or even in the interview process, they talk about all the things that they do well, but not what they do best. Cause they talk about things that they had to work hard to figure out how to to do. And so part of your task as a manager, when people first come on board is to really be willing to iterate and say, okay, this is what they said they do well, but let's see actually what kind of genius is going to emerge. And then to be, once you realize that to be willing to, um, to move them around. And let me give you a quick example, just to really hammer this point home. So, um, there's a, a fellow by the name of John Cave, and he works for the National Football League. And over the last couple of years, he's been able to evolve the game through technology. Those headphones that the coaches wear to talk to each other, um, those the, the headsets, they, he, that has advanced significantly. But it might not have happened had it not been for a boss who was willing to recognize his strengths and then get him to play to them. So she gets hired. She's the CIO. She's looking at it, and he's like, you know, he's good at 
kind of systems administration stuff. But what he's really good at is at building things. So she goes to him and she's like, okay, I don't want you to manage payroll. I want you to start building stuff. And he's like, no, no, no. He didn't want to do it because he felt like it was a demotion. She's like, no, trust me, you're going to be a great innovator. And of course he is. And so part of your job as a boss is to Number one, suss out what they do well and and expect that as they come in the door, those are going to emerge. They may not be apparent immediately. And once you suss it out to value it and then persuade them that they should value it as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the entitlement piece uh, a little bit because I think that there are two things that happened uh, that I've seen and I've watched it in myself and I've watched in other people is that you get to a certain level of, of success or, or accomplishment and entitlement kicks in, uh, even in the smallest of ways. How do you, how do you, how do you balance that with at the same time asking for what you actually genuinely deserve? Oh, it's such a great question. Um, it, 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 oh, it's a tightrope. I, I think one of the ways, okay. So one of the ways we think about it is that, um, it's like, you know, the movie star who gets pulled over for speeding. They're like, you know, don't you know who I am? Like, that's totally entitled. Like they were speeding, they should get a ticket. And so I think it's when we start to believe that we deserve things for something we actually didn't we don't, we don't deserve it. Like we don't deserve that. Um, and I also think that we can sometimes be entitled when, um, you know, there is a raise or a promotion or credit for a good idea that we didn't get and we did deserve it. And then, so we start feeling like everybody's in our debt, like the universe owes us. So again, flip side, different ways to be entitled. I do believe that, um, we, we know instinctively when we've worked hard on something and we should get it and we, we, we deserve to have it. And so then the question is, and this is where I think then the entitlement can kick in. And this is what we have to figure out how to do is we expect that people are going to notice it and be aware of it and understand what we've accomplished. And we have to be humble enough to get buy-in and to help convey and to help present what we've done in a way that the person on the other side of the table can understand. The way I, the, the, the way I would maybe suggest that you think about this is whenever you want to jump to a new curve um, and basically say to someone, hey, I did this, I want you to acknowledge it, you're actually asking them to jump to a new curve as well, but it's not their curve, it's your curve. And so you've got to think about translating what you've done. Just like I would need to translate what I'm doing to, to Chinese or to Hindi, um, whatever language it is, you've got to do the hard work and be humble enough to do that translation. And, um, that's, I think one of the ways that we can really battle that sense of entitlement is to, is to translate. Do you think that having access to tools, resources, distribution channels, social media amplifies, uh, the sense of entitlement that people feel? Or do you think hmm. it's making it worse than it used to be in the past? You know, Shrini, I don't know. Um, I mean, the, the way you asked the question, I think you believe that it might be, but I, <laughs> I actually haven't. I yeah, but I haven't thought about it. So I, I suspect it does because we can have an inflated sense of self because it's easier to, you know, have press clippings and therefore to believe our press clippings. Um, but that's what, you know, loved ones are for, right? That's what truth tellers are for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, I, the other day I was speaking and someone came to me and they're like, do you talk like this to your children? I'm like, 
you're joking, right? Yeah. I'm like, I, I get at home and I'm like, hey, you know, look at how important I am, children. Look at how important I am, husband. And they're like, yeah, right. You know, so I, I do think that you do need to do that from a social media perspective. That's part of building a brand and, and building a brand is what allows you to, you know, have people value the work that you're doing but you balance it or not, but you, you balance that with having people around you who are your truth tellers, who, who will, by the way, love you no matter what, regardless of what your press clippings say. And because the price of them loving you, no matter what is, is also the fact that they're, they don't, you know, they don't see you, uh, in an unrealistic way. They see all of you. And that's, that's a, a curse on some days. And on most days, it's a, it's a wonderful gift. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think that, uh, in so many ways, you know, when we look at people through press clippings, what we're seeing is their life through a window. And I was, I was just writing about this this morning. I said, you know, if you went to somebody's house and you stood on the curb and you looked through the window and you drew all these conclusions about who they were and what their lives were like through a window, you would be drawing a very inaccurate conclusion. Right. Right. Especially like you're saying, depending on which window you're looking through. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, it, the reason it's on my mind is I, Tom Brady was having this conversation with Oprah a few weeks ago on uh, the Super Soul podcast. And one of the things that she had asked him is, you know, how as, you know, Tom Brady, you know, this amazing quarterback being married to Brazilian supermodel Giselle, do you have some semblance of of normalcy and, and like avoid ego. And the thing that he said, I think that really struck me is, is we don't see ourselves the way the world sees us. Uh, mm. and, and, you know, and then, then the other thing that I think was really interesting was he talked about fame changing him and, and, you know, what, one of the things that he said was that because of fame, he actually suddenly his capability to trust people had actually diminished. And he even told a story about, uh, one of his son's friends who said, uh, I'm only friends with you because your your dad is Tom Brady, and it was, it was so heartbreaking to hear that. Oh, oh, wow, that's tough. And, and what's amazing is that as a child, they will say that, but you know that the adults think it. Yeah, but they will never say it. Yeah, that's one of the prices that they paid. And so, yeah, that's. I, but I love the insight of what you said. Of we don't see ourselves the way other people see us, and that's. That's lovely. I, I, I like that a lot. Something to definitely hang on to. Yeah. So we've talked uh, sort of about learning and growth, uh, the seven accelerants. Let's talk specifically about the, the process of actually hiring people and building a, a team. I know we've got about 20 minutes left, so I want to focus on how this leads to actually building what you call a teams. Yeah. So, all right. So let's go back to this idea of the learning curve and how every single person is on a learning curve including you, including Tom Brady. And we build a teams by optimizing those learning curves. And so what we've seen in our research is that at any given time, you've got 70% of your people in the sweet spot of their learning, that steep part of the curve where it's hard, but not too hard. Um, these are the people that you can give lots of, um, stretch assignments to and really push them. And in doing that, they will innovate on behalf of the organization. And they're, they're very much engaged. So they're really loving their work. In fact, I would argue when you're in the sweet spot, regardless of who you are, you actually become a high potential. 
You want to have at any given time 15% of your people at the low end of the learning curve. These are the people who are inexperienced. They don't quite know what they're doing. So they're going to be slower, but they're also going to ask lots of questions like, why do we do it like this? And in that, why do we do it like this? Even though it can be pesky like a three-year-old on your good days and on your really bad days feel incredibly threatening to you because they're asking, why do you do it like this? Those questions open the door to insights and innovate and opportunities for innovation. So you need people at the low end of the curve. And then you want 15% of your people at the high end at any given time. These are the people who are the keepers of the status quo. They know they've got this perspective. They're at the top of the mountain. The trick with them, though, is that because they've mastered things, they can get bored and bored people leave or they get complacent and they stay, which is really bad. And in fact, if you want to know if your organization's about to be disrupted, all you have to do is take the pulse of your workforce. If you have too many people at the high end, then you're at risk. And so you build a great team, a team that is optimized for innovation by having people the 15, the 70 and the 15 percent along the curve. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, why is it then that we as a culture uh really, I, I think, not just glorify their accomplishment, but crave, you know, star players. I mean, I, I think basketball is a perfect example of this, right? Uh, like, why do we why do we have, you know, like the desire to get a LeBron James on our team? And how do you manage when you have, you know, LeBron James surrounded by people who are not LeBron James? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think one of the reasons we do it is it's our own ego. Um, you think about um, the fact that oftentimes job qualifications are for for the gold standard. I mean, it, just a well, I don't know if we have time, but I'll, I'll tell the story really quickly. So if you if you go to this place called Butte, Montana, in mid 1800s, all these people went there. They're panning for gold, and then there wasn't any gold. So these people they sell their they sell off their claims, and the next wave of miners discovers copper. Well. The time copper is not valuable, but um, as um, electrical wiring eventually became a thing, copper became extremely valuable. So these people who are willing to be patient are now known as the copper kings, copper kings. And so I think what happens when we're hiring is we want the gold standard. We want the top of the curve expertise. And part of the reason we want the gold standard is it's easier. And there's an ego on our part because having the gold standard makes us look good. I hired all Harvard MBAs. I hired all Yale MBAs. I feel important. And yet when we do that, you you know that very number one, it's going to be harder to get them. You're taking on competitive risk. Number two, they're going to be bored quickly. And um, whereas when you're willing to hire people at the bottom of the curve, you're hiring for potential, not for proficiency. You're going to get a lot more life out of them, a lot more enthusiasm. And those options tend to not be overpriced. They're not overpicked. And um, and they have something to prove. And so so I think it's human nature that we tend to want to hire the bright, the, the, slide, the shiny, the sleek um, for our own ego. But that's not actually what makes the best team. Okay. So uh, I think I want to take this question and frame it from a different lens. Uh, since we're talking about basketball, would, you know, fun fact, I'm a weirdo who doesn't actually watch any sports, but I play sports video games religiously, like every day. Uh, and I couldn't tell you about what's going on in any major sport. So but, then why did you say LeBron James? That's hilarious. Well, okay. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> it is, it, to me, it's, it's the, the example that makes the most sense. So a lot of people probably don't know this, uh, depending on, on what age they were. Uh, you know, Golden State Warriors are amazing right now. Uh, you know, absolutely phenomenal. Multiple championships in a row in the last couple of years. I mean, like a, probably the most valuable franchise in the NBA. When I was a, a freshman at Berkeley, uh, 
Golden State Warriors tickets, season tickets, were sold by people on campus harassing students on tear-out sheets for $60. Like, just mm-hmm. imagine this team. Like, this is how desperate they were to get people in. They were that bad. And I remember thinking to myself when I was a freshman, someday somebody's going to buy this thing and they're going to turn it around and it's going to make them incredibly wealthy. What I wonder is, based on your knowledge of building teams, how does something go from selling tear-out sheets on campus, selling tickets with tear-out sheets on a college campus to becoming the most valuable franchise in the NBA? Like From this lens, how does something like that happen? Mm -hmm. Okay. First of all, great example. So I'm going to, I'm going to, so, so the way you do it from this lens is that you apply this framework. So number one, you look for ways to take on market risk. And so, and this goes back to some of the money ball stuff that we've looked at is you look for, you look for players, you play where no one else is playing. You look for players that people aren't necessarily looking at as being interesting, but they have no ego and you start to hire or bring players on board that other people aren't looking at. Again, you can use the money ball metrics, for example, to assemble a team but you also know that they can work together. You find ways to um, leverage the strengths of these people and not just their strengths in terms of on the court. There's a wonderful example. Um, I just had Chester Elton on my podcast. who was talking about the Sixers, how they were this losing team. And yet what they did is they allowed the players to come in and sit in while the coach talked him through people who bought season tickets, talked them through what his game plan was. They got to meet the players. And you know what? A lot of people don't care care if the team's losing, if they get to meet an NBA player, they just want to meet an NBA player. So they figured out what their strengths were, but not just what their strengths were, but their distinctive strengths were. And that ends up being a flywheel when you're willing to play where no one else is playing. Um, I don't know what the Golden State Warriors did, but again, this goes back to the idea of embracing constraints. They had the constraint of being a losing team, but they still had a lot. They still had these acres of diamonds, which are NBA players, and whether it's a losing team or a winning team, people still want to meet them. So you turn that constraint into a tool creation. And so then what happens is you suddenly have this very, very engaged group of fans, and that engaged group of fans starts to give energy to the players, and you start to give energy to the players it starts to build. Um, And then number four, you battle entitlement. The way you assemble that team is you do not put anybody on that team who says, I'm the king. I'm the, you know, I'm the best. You have people who play together. Um, There's a wonderful example of of this is, uh, this goes kind of strengths and entitlement. Um, A young entrepreneur, when she's in college, her, her coach brings them in and says, okay, I want you to shoot from anywhere on the court and I want you to record your percentages. But once you record the percentages, I want you to memorize them. And then once you memorize your percentages, I want you to memorize the percentages of every single person on the team. So you know where you need to be passing the ball or et cetera. So that was really powerful. So that's an example. I I won't keep going, but those are some examples. And then I think from the team perspective is you bring some people on who are some experts. You, you need a LeBron James, Mm. but you don't need them to all be LeBron James. And you need some people who are very early in their career and just figuring it out, just, you know, straight out of college, perhaps. And you see people who are sort of more in the sweet spot, the more utility players who are sort of, you know, early, early, but not too early, late, but not too late. And so that's, that's how I would, I would assemble it and use this framework to, to build that. Wow. Um, but great story. 
One final question around this. So how does that level of performance get maintained? You know, when you get to, hey, Steph Curry is a guy who's a lights out three point shooter and we've won multiple championships in a row. Like, how do they stay at that? Uh, well, once they've gotten to that. Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, it's the same question of what do you do when you've got a CEO and they've been there for 10 years? And the, and the answer is you just keep giving them stretch assignments. So you find ways um, to say to him, all right, oh, and you as a coach figure out how do we challenge him? And there are different ways to challenge him. You can div- do different team configurations. You can say, all right, so you've got this amazing, you know, three point shot. All right, where else are we going to have you, um, you know, figure out what to do? And so you find ways to keep on stretching them, keep on challenging them and, and make sure that they're not just, okay, dialing it in. And so as someone playing at his level, he's going to do a lot of this. But as a coach, you got to put them in enough situations where they've got to figure stuff out. They're that beginner again, that jumble of jigsaw pieces. They don't know how it puts together so that they're questioning of like, why do we do it like this? How could we do it differently? And part of that's his responsibility, the player, the employee's responsibility. And part of it's the coach, the, the manager's responsibility to get people in a, an uncomfortable enough situation that they have to ask questions that will lead to insight. Wow. Um, wow. All right. So I have two final questions for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, You've had kind of a front row seat to the working world, how teams are built. Uh, Based on on your research and your experience, what do you think the future of work is going to look like for your kids and people who are coming through the education system today and, you know, even parents who are listening to this? Well, it's interesting. I, I think we've got a couple of clues in, in something you just said. You said you sp- you play sports video games every day. Um, our oldest son played um, League of Legends, you know, every day when he was in high school. And he, he's not playing video games now. But what was interesting to me in observing um, – him is that he knows he knows what a distributed team looks like. He knows how to collaborate, and you do too, with people across the world that you've never seen, you never met. Um, I do think that we will still do work inside of organizations. I think it certainly has its place. There's something, you know, sometimes we get more energy from being side by side with people, and there is value to it. But I think that it will become increasingly flexible. And we will continue to try to optimize on the basis of how how Shrini does his best work, how Whitney does her best work. And so I think it's actually really exciting because, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't do a short term gig. You couldn't do a, you couldn't be a freelancer. And now it's like whatever works and people know how to do distributed teams. They know how to work in person. I think sometimes the distributed teams com- communicate better than the in-person teams, because when you're in person, you take for granted that you're communicating, but you aren't necessarily. And when you're far away, you have to figure out how how to work together. And so I this framework of building an, an A-team, it applies whether you're in person, whether you're um, remote, um, because you're still managing for the learning of the person um, and every single person on your team. Mm. Wow. Uh, well, this has been incredible. You've packed it with a ton of really, really eye-opening uh, and thought-provoking insights. So I have one last question, which I know I've asked you before, uh, and it's how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I, I have a different answer. I think it's when your work is two answers. Your work is so excellent. Your work is just so excellent. And that you as a person every single day, try to figure out how to perfect your craft, whatever that craft is, whether it is a writer, whether you're a welder, um, 
Um, whether you're a gardener, whether you're the the, the president of a, com- a company, the CEO of a company, every day you're trying to figure out how to um, improve your craft. That to me is what makes you unmistakable. And the other thing is, and to me it's a both and, that's the functional side. The other piece is, is that when the person right in front of you, right this very minute is the most important person in the world, that also makes you unmistakable. Wow. Well, I think that makes a really fitting and poetic end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and the book? The easiest place is to go to WhitneyJohnson.com. You can find the diagnostic there. You can find my book. You can find the Disrupt Yourself podcast. So just WhitneyJohnson.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.